This is the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, bringing you insights shared from the stage at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference hosted by the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Find out more about our conference and join our community by visiting docsf.health, docsf.health. Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, otherwise known as DocSF. I am your host for this podcast series. On our last podcast, we heard a quick but very instructive perspective on the financial market's view on health innovation funding. Today, we dive into policy and its impact on healthcare. I'm very fortunate to work with Tom Barber at UCSF, Tom was the chair of the Council for Advocacy for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and his experience roaming the halls of Congress, coupled to his personal interest in healthcare policy, makes him a perfect person to bring our audience up to date with policy issues relevant to healthcare. Let's join Tom as he introduces his panel of experts on the stage at DocSF 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll um, resume for the next session. We're going to go into our politics desk, which has been a very popular and successful session we run at the end of every Doc SF. And I'm very fortunate that Tom Barber is in our department, an old friend of mine as well. He was for four years a chair of the Council on Advocacy for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. And he's very steeped in the ways of the, uh, of the thank you for our member of the Academy uh, contingent over there, uh, on, on the impact that, that that's policy in Washington can have in healthcare. So I'll have you come up and introduce you, uh, your colleagues for our session. Thank you, Tom. Great. Thank you so much, Tabano. Uh, okay, good. Great. I have three members of the panel that we're going to introduce, and it'll be um, some quite fun times talking about politics, I hope. Rather than thinking about all the negatives about politics these days, let's talk about the positives. I've got three people um, to introduce. The first is Catherine Hayes, who's the Senior Director of Government Relations. You want to come on up and um, for the Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and does a great job in Washington as a lobbyist uh, on orthopedic issues. Um, and she's really going to talk to us about the legislative initiatives and things that have affected Academy of Orthopedic Surgery members, uh, both in the past two years and going forward a couple of years to get a sense for what's going to affect orthopedics. Next, we're going to hear from uh, Dale uh, Vandemark. Um, come on up, Dale. And um, he is a co-leader of a uh, industry um, health industry advisory practice of Will and Emery, which is an a law firm based in the United States, and he's the co-leader of that uh, firm's Digital Health Strategy Initiative and is the resident in Washington, D.C. So he's going to tell us a little bit more about the regulatory, legislative, and legal issues facing healthcare startups. Um, so that'll be quite an interesting talk. And then we're going to hear from uh, Mahak Shah, who's here, and he is a he leads the uh, value management for healthcare practice at Harvard Business School and is associate faculty at the Rodney Labs, led by Atul Gawande. So he's going to talk to us about value-based care. So this is going to be uh, quite an interesting talk. We're going to have each of them speak briefly, and I think Catherine's going to go first, talk about some of the legislative initiatives that affect orthopedic surgeons, and then we'll go on to Dale and then to Mahek. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so I first wanted to talk about uh, kind of what happened in the 115th Congress the first two years of uh, the Trump administration. 
So the Congress uh, and the administration spent a lot of time talking about um, opioids. It kind of took all of the air out of the room on many of the other um, healthcare issues that we face. Um, and they also spent a lot of time kind of trying to peel away at the ACA. And so they delayed the medical device tax, the Cadillac tax, expanded health association plans, repealed the individual mandate, those kinds of things. But I think even though Republicans and um, the president would still like to dismantle the ACA, obviously with the Democratic-led House, um, this really isn't political feasibility. So instead, uh, it really looks like people are going to be focusing their attention um, on really finding the value in healthcare and trying to reduce costs. Um, this, of course, is setting aside kind of the Medicare for all debate, which I know we'll touch on a little bit later. But, but aside from that, um, it really looks like uh, increasing value and finding a way to, to, to cut costs is kind of the important uh, part of where we're headed. So uh, the administration released a report uh, late last year that addressed several different ways that we can address this. I've just highlighted a couple of, uh, that I think are most important for this group. Hospital consolidation and, you know, other things like the pharmacies increasing use of PBMs, of uh, pharmacy benefit managers, and those kinds of policies, I think, are getting scrutinized um, in Congress right now. In particular, with um, orthopedics, we're really interested in looking at hospital consolidation and how that's going to play out. There's policies that are in place um, right now and that we're looking at expanding a little more that would change the parity of how uh, a outpatient setting is paid versus a hospital inpatient setting versus um, a, uh, a physician group um, and kind of maybe changing the payment value of that. There's also an increased focus in price transparency. Um, so the 43%, the administration um, identified 43% of healthcare costs as being shoppable. So this is everything from using your uh, insurance to uh, buy a medicine at the pharmacist versus the pharmacist telling you that, you know, you can just not worry about a copay and pay out of cash, um, maybe being cheaper to, you know, looking at your surgery, your elective surgery, and if it's better to get it in an outpatient setting at one clinic versus the other. But the huge issue with this is that a lot of physicians really don't have the tools still to be able to um, tell a patient you know, what kind of surgery would be better, what the setting is cheaper. Uh, so any kind of tools that would be able to find that price transparency, both for the um, physician and the patient, uh, I think is uh, would be very valuable to Congress and to the administration right now. When it term comes to quality uh, measurement and reporting, as I'm sure everybody in this room is aware, electronic health records still are not interoperable. They're not easily read by an entire care team. They're not easily understood by the patient. Uh, so there will be an increased focus on trying to get that to finally work, uh, whether it's you know kind of starting over from scratch or other tools that can come in and kind of um, translate that into uh, various areas, I think would be um, helpful and something that's really being looked at right now. But beyond that, um, you know, there's uh, concern that the measures that we're using right now are not really accurate. They're not something that a patient can easily understand and easily talk to their, their doctor, their care team about what's happening with them. 
and that it's not delivering the kind of results and the kind of um, measures that we as a healthcare system need. And finally, I know telehealth and wearables is something that we've been talking a lot about at this conference, and the reimbursement has been brought up. You know, we just last Congress dealt with the idea of telestroke and having um, Medicare reimbursement for for that and for having um, rules that allow for a doctor in one state to take care of a patient in another state. So it is important and it is something that I think is being identified as an, a cost saver and, and a way to, to, to deliver high value. But it's, it's tough to kind of get Congress to get on board with that as much as I think they want to. So I think that this is kind of a, a, a glimpse of, you know, where we're headed and hopefully where uh, we'll be focusing a lot of our efforts, both with AAOS and our lobbying, uh, but also um, with the government. So with that, I'll go to... So I'm actually going to uh, talk, uh, I'm gonna, not going to do the presentation I thought I was going to do, because this morning during the course of events, um, I really thought it would be good to respond to some of the themes that came away uh, this morning. Particularly, I want to respond to some of the themes that came out of the discussions led by the J.P. Morgan team and kind of the notion of why haven't these digital health companies really taken off? Why, why do they seem to be lasting a long time in the context of what you need to think about if you're going to start a company from a, certainly from a legal and a regulatory perspective, because there's a lot of law and regulation in healthcare in the United States, including around the economics. So rather than talk really about this slide, although I will talk a little bit about this slide, I want to go back to kind of the basics of what you're doing when you're starting a company in healthcare, right? And a digital health company in particular. And let's assume for the moment you're not going to be looking to address some of the internal administrative efficiencies within operations, right? That stuff's pretty straightforward. That's just any other technology plan healthcare. There may be some nuance to it, but that's pretty easy. But from an economic perspective, who are you selling to? What's your market, right? One option is go to the, do the direct-to-consumer market, right? Easy to get into, not highly regulated, but ultimately, it's a capped market. And the reason it's a capped market is because most of healthcare is paid for through the third-party payer system, right? So you have to get into the third-party payer system to really take advantage of all the money that's really flowing into, into healthcare, Okay. So let's pause on that for a moment and go to the other market. The other market is to sell into the delivery system itself, right? To sell into the hospitals, to the physicians. Well, selling to hospitals and physicians is very difficult because hospitals in particular have razor-thin margins that they operate on. So every dollar that they spend either has to come back to them through some reimbursement or has to come back to them because of some cost savings associated with it, right? You have to sell into... A, a real uh, ROI, and you have to really make that clear and convince the hospitals that they can pay for it, right? The other way that you create value for hospitals, you create some new revenue model for them, right? But then you're back to that, okay, we got to get into the third-party payer system. So if you're back into the third-party payer system, what does that mean? This is true of Medicare, it's true of Medicaid, it's true of uh, their managed care programs, it's true of the third-party payer system as a whole, what do you need to do to sell into that market? Well, to sell into that market, you have to be thinking about 
the triple aim that everybody talks about, but primarily what you need to be thinking about is how am I going to reduce healthcare expenditures? How am I going to make sure that healthcare services are of a good high quality, if not an improved quality? And how do I expand access to care? And if you're not addressing one of those issues, selling into the third-party payer system, you're not going to get anywhere, right? They're not going to talk to you. You have to be doing that to even begin to have the conversation, regardless of developing all of your evidence. That has to be the core and the focus of your uh, business plan, right? And the reason you don't see big hockey sticks with, big, big, with digital health plays in this sector is because they don't adopt things all that quickly, right? They're very slow and deliberative because to prove to Medicare, to prove to a payer that you're actually doing those things takes a lot of convincing. They really need to know that that's what's going on in order to adopt those, adopt those programs. So it's a very long process that you have to go through to get market traction if you're really going to create something that has sustainability and has the potential to really stay within that healthcare system for a long period of time. And there are ways to do that, right? There are, there are ways to do that. And actually, the changes this year that Congress, as well as CMS, made in the area of telemedicine, I think are really emblematic of what you have to be thinking about, right? A lot of, uh, a lot of noise was made about the fact that Congress uh, and also CMS expanded telemedicine reimbursement. Why did they expand telemedicine reimbursement? Well, telemedicine reimbursement under Medicare has traditionally been an access tool, right? It was for people who didn't have access to a doctor. So the requirements to get reimbursed for telemedicine under Medicare are you have to be somewhere where there aren't doctors, essentially, right? You have to have an access need. And for many years, the advocates for telemedicine have been saying, we've got to get rid of those requirements. We've got to expand telemedicine because it's this great thing. It's going to get access to everybody. It's going to help reduce costs. It's going to do all these wonderful things. But Congress and CMS are looking at it from a different perspective. They're looking at it and saying, is this going to improve care? Is this going to improve access? And is it going to be cost efficient? And their biggest concern was, if we just start reimbursing telemedicine, all we're going to see is a huge increase in utilization and just more money flowing out the door into the hands of providers' pockets without a concurrent improvement in healthcare quality that we would expect, or even access, quite frankly. So when Congress and CMS expanded access to telemedicine this year, what did they do? They looked at very specific use cases and said, ah, we get it. We can see how providing a telemedicine service in this circumstance is going to be beneficial. It's going to, it's going to meet the triple aim in some way, right? Very focused, these particular use cases. And I think my perspective when we work with digital health companies and new companies coming into the healthcare sector that really want to have that long-term growth pattern, what I always go back to is you really need to focus in on workflows. You need to understand who you're selling into, how they're going to use your product, what the economics are for them before you can really start taking advantage of the economics that may be available to you. So it's a lot more complex, right? People have talked about what's the Uber of healthcare. There's never going to be an Uber for healthcare, right? There may be an Uber for specific aspects of the healthcare system, 
You're never going to have something that's going to come in and take it over that way because there are simply too many different perspectives within healthcare, all of which need to be addressed. So you need to really think about those workflows in order to uh, really develop a sustainable model. So that's my, my presentation. So I'll tr try and go through these slides fairly quickly so we can get to the fun part of interacting with all of you. Um, my name is Mehek Shah. I lead a, a segment of our research at Harvard Business School focused around value-based healthcare, uh, particularly on the cost measurement piece. I am a physician by training and a recovering investment banker before that. So I like to kind of step back into the classroom with everyone talking about value-based care throughout various topics and it being on the top of mind for many of you as we move forward with healthcare and kind of go back to actually how we define value. And this is how we define value at Harvard Business School and other areas of, of the research that we do. And we look at it by defining value as the health outcomes that matter to patients over the cost to deliver those outcomes. And those outcomes that matter include patient report outcomes. They include clinical outcomes. They include other surrogates that are used in care delivery that are captured through the care cycle and management of those episodes of care. And then the question that has to ask ourselves is that our unit of analysis that we look to assess value changes. It's not at a hospital. It's not within a clinic. It's actually within the medical condition that you're treating and you're caring for. And it's over the complete cycle of care. So we're moving in healthcare, we're moving from a vertical mindset of a department, uh, a building, into the horizontal, where using data, using analytics, using understanding costs of the resources that go into it, it's important to shift our mindset to a very horizontal look over the entire episode of care. Because everything from legislative, from regulatory, and from payment depend on this mindset. And so, you know, a patient presents with knee pain, goes through a series of interventions, and measurement at the end throughout that care cycle is as critical and of utmost importance. But what do you measure and how you measure needs, still needs to be standardized and still needs to have a common language amongst all the stakeholders in healthcare. Because we still don't know which places are delivering excellent outcomes, mediocre outcomes, and poor outcomes. Because the language is different, quality metrics are different, the who's and who's scores tackle some of it, but it's not the whole, whole uh, you know, it's the, um, the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And so we still have work to be done in this area. And my particular area of focus has been costs for the last five to six years. And we don't know how much things cost in healthcare. You know, they, we had Gunderson took 18 months to look at how much a knee surgery costs. And in many health systems that I've worked with around the world really have a, have a tough time telling me using the, the number of systems that they have collecting data, what it actually costs to deliver care. And it's unfortunate in an industry as big as ours, but, you know, we're making steps to do this. And I just put this slide up. It's a radar chart or a spider chart. But I wanted to show some of the power of when you actually measure outcomes the right way, when you measure costs the right way, you actually can compare uh, surgeons. And I know every surgeon in the room thinks they're the number one surgeon at their given uh, condition that they specialize in and they do high volume of uh, procedures on. And to give you a reference, we always get one access point in the cost team, uh, and that's the top left there cost of a total hospital stay. So the further out you go actually is, is lower costs. But on the other axes are all the outcome measures that should be measured and required. And so many systems do this. Most systems don't um, on a regular mandatory basis. But this should be the bare minimum of what we measure quality as. 
Because these things, if you're a patient or if you're a provider, help you make decisions on where you go to get care, who you get to get uh, see, and how you should be paid for based on the outcome that you deliver. I just wanted to give you an example of where we are in the world, uh, where we currently have projects going on, many in the US, but we have a nice contingency here in Europe over on the right side. We work a lot with our European partners, particularly in the Netherlands, uh, who is very forward-thinking in value-based care. And so we look to them as to seeing what they've done over many years in it around uh, things like women's health, diabetes care, and uh, other areas. For uh, enlightenment, Diabeter at the bottom in that little Europe column there is a, a clinic owned uh, by Medtronic. It's based in the Netherlands that only treats type 1 diabetes patients, kids. And they have a team that wraps around the service and the whole uh, episode and cycles of care that children en enroll in is devoted to this particular condition. And so they measure things, uh, all their outcome measures. They, they track and have developed pathways that we help them develop uh, over the course of the last two years. And they now, for the first time, understand what it costs to operate and deliver a diabeter in the Netherlands so then the uh, Medtronic can now take it forward into other markets if they choose so. Uh, we can also deliver care and assess value in the poorest country in the world, Haiti. Um, so this methodology that we've been using called time-driven activity-based costing, which is what every other sector of the economy uses to assess costs. Uh, they know all the resources that go into it. And healthcare if you, is the coffee analogy I'll give is if you, when you go to Starbucks and you get your cup of coffee, Starbucks knows exactly how much that barista on average spends making your cup of coffee, your latte, say. They know the, the paper cup that goes into it. They know the machine and equipment that's used and how long it takes to make it. And so they know all their cost of goods and, and et cetera. The healthcare version, the current healthcare version of getting a cup of a latte at Starbucks would be, depending on what time of day and the mood of the barista and, you know, how they're feeling. And you go in on, say, 8 a.m. on a Monday, so it's busy time. You get your cup, you get your latte, you go to work, and you're happy, you're caffeinated. And then about two to four weeks later, you get a bill, two bills. You get one from the barista and you get one from Starbucks, wherever you went, right? And, and over the course, and if it's in Harvard Square, for example, that, that, that uh, Starbucks location cost, that bill is going to be higher than if you went to Omaha uh, on the corner. And that barista might have been, you know, a level three, level four barista, like really, really top notch, you know, has a five-star rating. So the, her, her or his bill to you will be much higher, maybe two to three times higher than if you were in that Omaha location and they were, you know, only a two-year veteran of Starbucks. And, and that's current healthcare costing systems now. And many of you might have read and been seeing the debate both on social media around this transparency of charges via the charge master. And in my opinion, it's my personal view, is that, you know, it's just, it's still, it's like a Band-Aid or sort of a, on, on the wound that's still there. It doesn't get at to the heart of the matter because the charge master, uh, hospitals don't get reimbursed. They get a percentage of the charges that are put out. There are so many contracts that go from the provider to the payer, and patients pay a percentage of, of that basis. So it's almost a meaningless transparency. It's a step in the right direction, 
but it doesn't really get it to the heart of understanding your underlying costs. And if I've, tell, I've told these health systems when I, when I meet with them and talk to them around their projects that they're working on with us and other areas that they're interested in, in uh, tackling, I said, if you're a health system and you don't understand the components of value-based care around outcome measures and cost measures, you're going to be like blockbuster video in, within five to 10 years, maybe less than that, because these are components that are critical to the future of your viability. And so obviously, many of you are familiar with bundled payments. You've been in this uh, experience. And so I think that we've moving globally from a fee-for-service world to more of a capitated or bundled payment uh, world. And to the various stakeholders in the room, I kind of provided what I think is the future. I think there's going to be more and more bundled payments coming forward across medical conditions as we understand our outcome measures, as we understand our cost measures. I think we're seeing more and more employer-based contracting. I think the, the right things are happening with digital health and digital therapeutic adoptions. For the entrepreneurs in the room, I think you just have to understand this framework of what value-based care is and, and deliver upon it and be nimble enough in a majority fee-for-service world to a value-based world. And then for all the stakeholders, I think it's look to other industries that have mastered convenience and experience and customer knowing thy customer. Because this is something that I've seen firsthand that lacks in the majority of healthcare stakeholders. But I'm optimistic that if you can work with and understand those principles better, you can deliver upon it. And I think my view on, and we'll get into this in the discussion, I hope, is that these are the next big value-based healthcare companies. Great. Thank you so much. I'm going to start off with a, a couple of quick questions for you guys and just go down the line. The first one is really, you've got this nice slide here teeing us up. Um, we've got this new effort led by Atul Gawande, the Amazon Berkshire Chase uh, sort of um, effort. How is that going to play out? And is it going to actually be successful given our regulatory and legislative frameworks and our marketplace frameworks? And just, if you could just run down the line and just sure. uh, comment on that. Yeah, so I, I actually wrote something up briefly, uh, posted on my LinkedIn a, a few days before Tool took his um, post. And I said that, you know, in my view of the, the new entity, the new co uh, that's formed, is that he's using, he's able to use this 1.2 million lives that are now he's covering. And he's got a giant sandbox to play in. And he's got the sandbox no other company, no other entity has really had going up to now to where the mission from the get-go is one, there's no profit motive. Two, they have, he has essentially unlimited resources to try, try again, fail, fail fast, and eventually succeed on various aspects that he's tackling. And I think the mix of those 1.2 million lives is, represents the majority of America in the sense that you've got Chase is uh, big employees of being tellers. You've got warehouse workers from Amazon, and you've got uh, manufacturing workers from Berkshire. And so I think he's got a, a great setup, and I think he's, he's hired the right team to date. And I'm optimistic for it. I think it's great. So I have just a little bit of a different take. Um, so obviously, I think that this kind of um, situation that they've put together, this joint venture, is fantastic and you know probably should be where we're headed um, as a healthcare um, group, but you know they're a disruptor and they're disrupting pretty significant businesses that have pretty significant lobbies in Washington D.C. Um, and so, anytime any kind of disruptor comes in, um, those lobbies 
can and will put up roadblocks. So I do worry that 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 kind of, um, you know, the the legislative and regulatory framework that we're currently operating in um, may not allow something like this to really move forward successfully. I have no idea at all. <laughs> None. Clueless. I think Mahek's comments are probably, well, both um, are good. I mean, I we don't know what they're going to do. We'll have to we'll have to see, but certainly bringing together you know a large population like that creates a lot of opportunity. But what I would say about uh, just generally about that is that it's indicative of a larger trend we're seeing in healthcare, which is very interesting of non traditional partnerships coming up. So you're seeing now increasingly. For example, health systems partnering with life sciences companies to uh, develop therapeutics that will last beyond just taking a pill, for example, and uh, partnerships with, of course, technology companies and the the people who have healthcare data, right? Uh, partnerships between the payers and different types of uh, uh, healthcare providers out there in the community, and I think that uh, to me. Those sorts of partnerships are where we're going to see really the future start to take root. Great. Thank you. And from my perspective, I think that the one challenge is that where reform really has to happen is at the healthcare delivery side, and he's more on the healthcare and the employer and healthcare payment side. So how that's going to translate is going to be difficult. Last question for all of you. Medicare for all. A lot of talk about that. Is that reasonable? Is it going to happen? What do you guys think? And how is it going to affect us? I will say no. I don't think it's going to happen, at least not the way that some people talk about it and would like to see it happen. I think that there would there is a better chance of a version of Medicaid for all being adopted than Medicare for all. But even that, I think, is somewhat of a, of a long shot. There are uh, so many entrenched interests in the current payment system that uh, uh, it would be hard, I think, politically, but I would I would defer to you on, on comments that way. But uh, I think also saying Medicare for all, Medicaid for all is a shorthand for saying we need a more efficient payment system. And I think a lot of work would have to go into whatever it was that looked. It's not going to look like what Medicaid looks like. It's not going to look like necessarily what Medicare looks like. It's going to have to be something fundamentally different if we're going to roll it out to everybody. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, it's politically not feasible in the next two years, probably not in the next four. Uh, but I think we're all marching down some kind of payment. I mean, it, it you know, it seems like everybody, the uh, rhetoric is more towards having insurance for everybody. Um, there was a small groundswell of movement early in last Congress uh, to have catastrophic care for everyone. Um, This received a lot of support on both the Republican and Democratic side, and it kind of became less um, sexy and and, and dropped um, interest. But I think, you know, Medicaid for all or having just a whole host of Medicare Advantage-like plans for people to supplement or buy into is, I think, more feasibly where we'll, we'll end up. Yeah, I think my take, I don't know exactly what I would call it, or but I think as as we as physicians, if we're going to tell our patients, you know, these are the, the minimally viable things that you need to do on an annual basis to, to be uh, healthy, live well, and, and become, uh, optimize your health, then as a, as a country, as a nation, I feel like we shouldn't, we, every citizen should not have to worry about paying for that. 
you know, two, what, if it, it might cover two visits and your annual checkups or whatever, but that sort of basic level coverage, almost what a lot of direct primary care models uh, provide, should be sort of a national uh, effort. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, I think we're running over. So I think we are. Are we okay for one question from the audience? Oh, one question from the audience. Anybody got any questions? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Disrupting. We're having some disruption with the lights. Uh, but anyway, yes. Thank you. And let's go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are plenty of entities. I think it's an exciting time to be in healthcare. And I think that, I think that the, uh, the fact that we have big tech getting in and making folks like the United and Aetna do the business maneuvering that they've done to, to remain relevant and lead in their area is an exciting time because that forces people to really think and evolve. Yeah, I mean, disruptors are kind of what makes the world go round. If you look at Ubers versus a traditional cab, I Uber, you know, five times a day and couldn't tell you last time I took a cab. Um, I think that the, the issue with that versus what's going on in healthcare is I don't think that cab companies really saw that coming. I don't think that anyone would envision that somebody would take a phone and and demand a stranger to come pick you up and drive you to wherever you need to be. Um, but healthcare, I think, is a little bit more predictable because it's such a large industry that we all kind of sharing in the same conversations. But I do think it is an important aspect and, you know, it, sh- it should be done and should be applauded. Given the, given the structure of the system, I think you're right. But I think even the structure of our system, you have to look at what it is you're going to disrupt to really create change. And in my view, if you're going to disrupt healthcare in a way to make positive change, you have to start with the money. So the disruption that will really propel us down a different path is will hopefully come from the payer systems, both Medicare and Medicaid, as well as the the private payment systems. And I think comments about what some of those organizations are doing is a good example of, of them trying to think beyond what they normally do with greater or lesser degree of success. But organizations like Oscar Health and, and Clover and others, again, trying to push from the financial side some changes that could really make a difference. And just the last comment I would say is most disruption doesn't come from large existing players. It usually comes from new players or new people coming in and coming in at the margins rather than going head on. And I'm a little concerned that the disruption from these big players may not be as great as what we need, which is really the people coming from the side. Anyway, thank you all very much. I really appreciate your expertise. Thank you. In this, our last episode of the DocSF 2019 edition of the Digital Orthopedics podcast series, we discussed some of the major policy issues impacting healthcare. One key take-home point is that value-based care is not going anywhere anytime soon. At DocSF, we think of mapping out a journey for our audience over the course of the conference. So let me map it out for you one more time. We started with focus lectures on robotics, designed to level set the audience on the state of the art in robotics and their most likely medical applications. We then took a deeper dive and looked at one example of how to implement a robotic solution in a hospital. We followed that deep dive by pulling way back to the broader trends impacting digital health with an engaging keynote on the future promise of blockchain in healthcare. From there, we tackled three more key trends in technology, namely wearables, the Internet of Things, and cloud computing, as well as their application to orthopedics. We then turned our attention back to sensors for our second focus lecture, where, 
again, we level set our audience, not only on what we can do with sensors, but also how the data should be managed. Following the broader discussion on sensors, we did another deep dive in the breakouts. There, we followed a sensor company's journey to market. We rounded out our series with two presentations designed to broaden our viewpoint. The first was on the financial markets and their perspectives on healthcare investing. The second was a discussion on the general policy trends being outlined in D.C. and how they may affect the healthcare ecosystem. However, what we're not able to do is bring you on our podcast the other six case study breakouts in our now famous Leadership Summit. The Leadership Summit is something we're very proud of at DocSF. We run it each year in partnership with one of the world's leading design firms, IDEO. It is a smaller and intimate experience for about 100 participants looking to use design thinking and change management skills to effectively deploy digital health tools. This is another aspect of DocSF we think is critical. Digital health is about change, and change does not happen in a vacuum. Indeed, it is said that most organizations have developed an innate immune response to change. It kills it whenever change is possible. It takes skilled leadership to lead change. And at DocSF, we aim to provide our audience with some of the necessary tools to be successful agents of change. Another thing we can't quite bring you is the magic that happens between members of our community, the friendships that turn into business opportunities, and the aha moments we hear about each year. To experience that part of DocSF, you'll have to join us in San Francisco on January 11 and 12, 2020, the weekend before the J.P. Morton Conference. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast or want to get involved with our mission, please contact us at info at docsf.health. If you want to make sure we continue to bring you these podcasts, please tell your friends, post us on social media, and take a minute to rate the Digital Orthopedics Podcast on iTunes. It makes an amazing difference in people's ability to find us. We hope you enjoyed listening to these presentations delivered in San Francisco from the DocSF stage in early January 2019. We thank you for joining our journey as we catalyze the adoption of digital health tools in healthcare and use orthopedics as the uniting paradigm. Please become part of our community at docsf.health. We want to work with you to make the future of healthcare present. I am your host, Stefano Bini, on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast from DocSF. Farewell for now.